this morning we are continuing our study of Ephesians and the, and the, um, uh, the sermon series in Christ and uh, in community. So we're talking about unity. How do we live together? How does Christ change us? What does a follower of Jesus look like, particularly in community, interacting with, uh, with other people? What does a life transformed by the gospel really look like? And we're in this section in uh, chapter 6, still in the section where Paul is talking about the rules for the household. Uh, and there's a corresponding passage in Colossians. Uh, a lot of scholars uh, are, kind of think, well, you know, Paul has become very domesticated now. You know, he's kind of calming down in his old age and wants to talk about family matters. But really, he's talking here about a very important subject uh, about how we relate to one another, how husbands and wives should relate, how parents and children. And this morning, he starts talking about and masters and slaves. And I was just kind of curious. Um, does that strike you as funny? Did any, how was, what's your reaction to that, the, the, the idea that uh, Paul wants to address masters and slaves? And I, I'm asking for you to, for feedback here. Did, did it strike anybody as funny or strange? Have any thoughts about it? It's okay. You know, the people around you won't bite if you speak up. No reactions. <laughs> you thought, of course. Uh, I would be able to apply this very well to my life because I have slaves. Hopefully you did not say that. This is an odd subject to bring up in modern day living, at least here in America. Um, but it really gets at the heart of something very uh, essential to human life. Um, you know, much of human relations is about the exercise of or the, or the response to the exercise of power, okay? Maybe you can't relate to the idea of masters and slaves, but can you relate to the idea that someone has power over you and they exercise it regularly, maybe, maybe every day at work? Can you relate to that? You, you're, not, you're not convincing me that you can. Anyone here ever felt like they had a boss that didn't really understand their situation? If your boss is here, don't raise your hand. <laughs> yep, did you, ever, you ever feel like that? You know, your boss is, uh, you know, this is not good. As a boss, and I, this is tough too because I have a lot of hard things to say about bosses. I know there are lots of bosses in our congregation. Um, as a boss, you ever feel like, man, my workers just aren't working for me. They're just not doing their job. Anybody ever feel like that? Yeah. Yes. See, the bosses are more willing to say <laughs> because they have the power. Um, we have this struggle with the exercise of, of, of power, of, of submitting to it, of doing it justly. Uh, and that's, this is what this passage is about. Who's, con who's in control here? Who, who is dominating the moment? Maybe you walk into work or maybe even come into church and into a conversation and you say, who's, who's really in control of this conversation? Is it the person with the charismatic personality? Is it the person who's, you know, he, they have the money. Everybody knows they have the money. So, they, so people listen when they talk. Or, or maybe it's the person with the authoritative position or the domineering presence. You know, tall guys in the room, there are studies about this, that if you're tall, you know, that you have an inherent advantage in conversations. You have an inherent power advantage. It's true. This whole section is about the responsible use of authority, power. And yes, some are given greater authority than others, sometimes rightly, sometimes unjustly. 
What we're going to look at this morning is the right use of power and the right response to power. What does it mean for the transformed life to submit ourselves? Submit ourselves in service of those in authority, but also submitting ourselves, our authority, submitting our authority to the good of those who serve us. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 6, but... uh, as a preface, I'm going to read one verse from chapter 5, which is really the preface for this whole section about husbands, wives, uh, parents, and children, and now slaves. It's Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, Ephesians chapter 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning, even as we have done so already in, in, in prayer and in praise, we come to you now submitting ourselves to the reading and preaching of your word. And we pray that by your spirit, you would give us understanding of this text. It's an application to our lives, whether we are a worker or a boss, uh, whether we're a person who feels that we have very little power in our life situation or someone who has great power. Uh, Father, teach us how we might be like Jesus and submit what we have to you and to the service of others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ever hear the phrase, uh, who's in charge around here? You ever hear that? You ever say it? Who's in charge around here? We say it for lots of different reasons. One, it might be chaos. Like, man, someone's got to take control of this situation. Or it might be uh, someone, you you know, you think you're the person in charge and someone's challenging you and you're sort of emphasizing, hey, um, who's in charge around here? Meaning, not you, it's me. That's what we're talking about this morning. Power, the exercise of it, the dynamics of power and having a good understanding of who's really in charge. When we say that, that phrase, who's in charge around here, for many of us, our minds go to the workplace uh, and dynamics there. And I found some, some funny images. I remembered some funny images from, from, uh, from, my, from my younger days and, and searched for them about work-related uh, circumstances. Here's the first one uh, for those that are listening online. Here's a picture of a boss coming to the door of his worker. He's dressed the worker's dressed to go fishing, and, he, and the boss says, I know you're in bed sick with the flu, but I need the keys to the filing cabinet. <laughs> Sometimes you feel like that as a boss, that, you know, our workers just, they're, look, they're trying to take every advantage to not do their work, and, and somehow still get, get paid for it. Of course, there's the, uh, the, the, the flip side of that, of the worker feeling like he's being taken advantage of by management. And here we have, uh, hope this image isn't too graphic for some of you, the double-decker outhouse and uh, management gets to go to the top, and employees are at the bottom. Yeah, it feels that way sometimes. My boss is taking advantage of the situation. There's a tension, there's a struggle uh, between those with power and those without it, or at least those who have it to a lesser degree. That's a core frustration in the human experience. 
I'm not in control of my life. Someone else is. Or people just don't respect my position, do they? And the gospel speaks to it. Who's in charge around here? Now, if I was to ask that question of you in this wonderful crowd of lovely followers of Jesus Christ, and I said, who's in charge around here? What's the right answer? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is in charge. Remember that because I'm going to come back to it later. I'm going to ask you again. Now, should we respect Jesus' authority only when we like what he's doing in our lives? And the obvious answer is no, we should always respect it. And how does Christ use his authority? Well, he uses his authority in service of us. The king of the universe, the, the God we described in those songs, uh, indescribable. I, I did that on purpose. Um, he came, stripped himself of his majesty, took on our form that he would live as we should have lived and died the death we dare not die because he loved us. He used his authority and his power in service of us. And so this should become our pattern. We should honor our merciful Lord by submitting to each other. Submitting, if, if we have authority, we need to submit our authority for the good of those under our authority. And if we're under authority, we need to submit our service to those in authority over us. That is how we honor Christ. We need to talk about something before we dive too deeply into that. And we're going to talk about it for a little while. We need to talk about slavery. Because uh, it's, it's a distracting issue here. Why is Paul even talking about the, the right way to treat slaves? Slavery is inherently unjust. Would you agree? Why isn't he condemning it outright? Does the Bible condone slavery? And I want you to hear very clearly, very emphatically, the answer to that is no, the Bible does not condone slavery. Slavery is inherently a violation of uh, a person made in the image of God. It is incompatible with our nature, and it's also incompatible with the redemption that we have in Christ. There is an affirmation of authority in the scriptures, in the Bible, but also the personhood of the one under authority. You think about this, okay? We talk about husbands and wives and wives respecting, you know, the authority of the husband. But he, Paul doesn't just talk to the husbands about it. He says, wives, here, I'm talking to you. You matter. Children, you're under authority, but I'm talking to you directly. You matter. Slaves, you matter. I'm talking directly to you. Now, the Old Testament law does regulate slavery, but then again, it regulates divorce, and how does God feel about divorce? He hates it. He allows it because of the hardness of our hearts and, and because, because, of, because of sin. And, and he regulates it to, to manage the, the pain and the injustice of it at times. It's not a, it's not a, a he doesn't condone divorce. He does not condone slavery. Now, to understand the absence of the condemnation, we, got, we have to understand some of the context of the first century in Rome. And even when we do understand it, slavery is still really bad, okay? I'm not trying to say it's not bad if we just don't understand it in context. But it, it helps us understand how Paul is, is, is approaching it. According to the scholar Mark Cartwright, 
Slavery was an ever-present feature of the Roman world. Slaves served in households, agriculture, mines, the military, manufacturing, workshops, construction, and a wide range of services within the, in the city. Even doctors were sometimes slaves. As many as one in three of the population in Italy, or one in five across the empire, were slaves. One in three, one in five. And upon this foundation of forced labor was built the entire edifice of the Roman state and society. Slavery, that is the complete mastery of one individual over another, was so embedded in Roman culture that slaves became almost invisible. Not, not saying that the person themselves became invisible, but no one even, you wouldn't even think to ask someone whether they were slave or not. It was just so common. And there was certainly no feeling of injustice in this situation on the part of the rulers. So it's into this system, into this profoundly corrupt system, so dependent upon slavery that Paul speaks, if not a word of condemnation, he speaks a word of, of subversion, subverting the, even the idea of it. First, Paul, as I said before, talks directly to those under authority, talks to the slaves directly before he talks to the masters. No, no, what your experience is, but, you know, if a big wig comes in um, and, and, and is sort of saying, hey, we need to change things, he usually doesn't talk to the janitor. And he certainly doesn't talk to him first. But that's what Paul does. You matter. He addresses them before the masters. We see that in verse 5. Secondly, he tells the masters that God doesn't play favorites in verse 9, which is a way of saying... Don't think you're better just because you're in a position of power. You're not. And if we look at the totality of Paul's ministry, we see in many places the absolute subversion of the idea of slavery. In his letter to Philemon, who was a slave owner, he speaks to this master of a runaway slave who came to Christ, Onesimus. Onesimus ran away from Philemon, came in contact with Paul. Paul shared the gospel with him. He, he became a believer in Christ. And now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, and he's pleading on, the, on, the, on behalf of Onesimus. This is what he says to Philemon in verses 15 and 17 of that letter. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Another way of saying this is that hey, uh, Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. By law, he's your bondservant, but by grace, he is your brother. Live like that's true. We may not have a record of Paul condemning slavery in the scriptures. But his core teachings and his exhortation to fellow believers undermine it at every turn. Don't treat him like a slave. Treat him like a brother. Now, slavery is terrible. Uh, it undermines the humanity of those living under it. It's incompatible with the heart of the gospel. And that's why societies that let themselves be shaped by the scriptures, more fully shaped by the scriptures, they began to outlaw uh, slavery. And now it took way too long in the Western world. And the only accounting of that is the hardness of our hearts on the matter. 
but it is inconsistent with who God has made us to be, who God has called us to be, and it's certainly inconsistent with the freedom that we should have in our redemption in Christ. It is right that it is outlawed in all of its forms. But I also don't want for us to get on our high horses. Yeah, we're, we're, we're smarter. We're more enlightened than those people in America 150 years ago. Because first, oppression and abuse of power persist to this day. And secondly, so does slavery, even in the United States. I'm going to read to you from an article uh, from this past January in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch about something that happened right here in Kirkwood about a decade ago. On January 12, 2007, FBI agents and police officers entered a small apartment in Kirkwood to cap their search for Ben Ownby, a boy who had been snatched four days before from a rural school bus stop in Franklin County. And sitting quietly on a sofa was a second boy, a teenager. His name was Sean Hornback who had disappeared more than four years earlier from his own rural neighborhood in Washington County. He was still listed as a missing person, and almost everyone but his family had given up hope of finding him alive. Here are these two boys. Now, we think of them as kidnapped, but what they really were <coughs> was slaves, and they were in bondage. And they were rescued from their bondage by an observant police officer who happened to go to that, that, that apartment not too far from here and recognized the car in the parking lot. And just to cap off that story, Ben is now working and going to college in the St. Louis area, and Sean works at a factory in Peavely, uh, Missouri. But slavery persists in the United States and maybe even in your community. I mean, if it can happen in Kirkwood, where can't it happen? It's estimated that 17,500 foreign nationals and 400,000 Americans are trafficked in slavery and or prostitution into and within the United States every year. Every year. 80% of those are women and children. Um, sexual exploitation, forced labor, domestic servitude. Uh, people are forced into these activities. Um, one way the gospel should shape our lives is keeping an eye out for this and helping free people from this literal bondage. And so I ask you the question, are you able to recognize the signs? It's one of the reasons we put in your uh, bullets in this handout, spotting the signs. And I hope you keep this. If you see someone who appears to be under the control of someone else, someone who is reluctant to interact with others, has no personal identification, a person who has few personal belongings, wears the same clothes every day, is not able to move around freely, reluctant to talk to strangers or authorities, a person who appears frightened, withdrawn, or shows signs of physical or psychological abuse, someone who's always dropped off and picked up. Like they, they just don't have the freedom to move around. And you can see someone kind of regulating their, their travel. These are signs that someone may be in some, for, some, some form of slavery. And what do you do about this? Well, I would say, first of all, don't go confront the person because in doing so, you may put them in greater, uh, greater jeopardy of harm. 
uh, from the person who is enslaving them. Uh, call it into the hotline you see on that, uh, that handout. Now, you may, you may be a little bit nervous about that. Well, I'm getting, maybe I'm getting an innocent person in trouble. I, I'm just misinterpreting. Listen, the people on the hotline are able to sort through those things. Call, and they'll ask you questions. And it may be like, you know, that, that's, that doesn't sound to me like it's really, you know, what, you, what you're worrying that it is. Or they can say, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. You should have called. So keep this. And if you see signs of it, act on it. Slavery. It's abhorrent. A transformed life wants to help people to be free. Now, now that we have that background, perhaps we can better understand what Paul is uh, trying to say to those in power and those out of power. Uh, and since uh, the master-slave relationship is, is primarily a working one, and I'm assuming that you don't have slaves in your workplace, I'm hoping that, uh, we're going to talk about people with power and people without power or lesser power. We're talking about bosses and workers. First to those with power. This is what he says. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. So he starts with this, treat your slaves in the same way. What, what does he mean by that? Well, a few verses before, he's, he's exhorting slaves to treat their masters with respect. Uh, those in power then should show respect for those under their authority. And you might think to yourself, well, why do I need to do that? If you're a boss... I mean, you know, the hourly worker, the person who kind of transitions in and transitions out, they're not here long. Why do, why do I need to care long term about this person? I'm the person with, with the position of power. I worked hard for what, for, to, to get to this place. I earned it. They didn't. Uh, don't we inherently deserve the compliance of those under our authority? I have the degree. I put in the time. I have the accomplishments. Not them. Why should I respect them? Well, this is why. Because they're a person made in the image of the divine. Even if they're a terrible worker. There's someone made in the image of the divine. And we need to be careful about raising ourselves up above people made in that image. But also because if this person's a believer in, in Jesus, Christ considered this person so precious, so dear to him, that he gave his life. He went to the cross for them. And isn't Jesus the boss over you? In, in the medieval period, Catholic authorities, and I'm not talking about the modern Catholic Church here, I'm talking about something that happened 500 years ago. But during the medieval period, Catholic authorities felt deeply threatened by the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. They, they thought to themselves and even critiqued the doctrine, if we can't motivate people through fear of going to hell, how are we going to inspire obedience? And you could say that a, 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 a worldly boss might have a, a similar saying, if we can't threaten with docking pay, with firing, how will we get people to do their jobs? And we could expand this to uh, any power dynamic situation of, of a parent over a child within a marriage relationship. Uh, wherever there are power dynamics, wherever we're tempted to say, who's in charge here, meaning I'm in charge, 
How are we to motivate people to do what they ought to do, people under our authority? Paul says, do not threaten them. Don't threaten people under your authority. Instead, submit your authority to, to the good of those under your authority. Now, am I saying that there shouldn't be standards and we give grace all the time? Look, I, I, there's some complexities here as we're trying to work for people's best and they continue to be um, recalcitrant or difficult or, or, or even incompetent. And there may be cases where we do have to separate ways. But we don't do it from a place of threatening them with our power and leveraging their weakness. When things go sideways on a project, what is your tendency? To just dump the work on the people who work for you so you can keep going golfing on the weekend? Uh, when you want your team to increase productivity, how do you do that? Do you just say, you know, I'm going to crack the whip until you, until you produce? When someone is failing to meet expectations, do you say, listen, you better get your act together or I'm going to fire you? Daryl, you know, if I can't threaten, how do I get stuff done? Well, when things go sideways on a project, you roll up your sleeves and you work with the people under you to right the ship. You work with them. You inspire. When you want in improved productivity, train the team to work smarter. If there's a failing teammate, give them the necessary support to gain the competency they need. You need to behave in a way that inspires those under you to believe that you really care about them that you appreciate their labor, and that you want them to succeed. Well, Daryl, if I do that, I won't get the success I want. I'm not sure that's true, but let's just say that it is. This is what the Bible has to say about that. Proverbs 16, 8, better a little, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. God calls us to use authority in a righteous way. And the bare exercise of power and authority is the way of the world. It's the way of bullies. It's the way of brutal dictators. And Christ inspires our service of him and others through his love. Not fear. So those with authority, follow his example. Use your authority in service of those under your authority, just like Jesus. Now, to those without power, Paul also has some strong exhortations. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and res with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. He begins with the fact that we need to respect and fear those in authority. Fear not in the sense of terror uh, that we're going to be, you know, destroyed by the person in power, but recognize they they should be respected. They they have a position of power. They have the they have the power to discipline, like like our parents. Now, hopefully, our parents aren't exercising discipline because they're angry and wrathful, but they're trying to correct. Um, we want to fear them like we fear a parent, like we fear the Lord. The Lord is not looking to get you, but he will correct you. And that's unpleasant. So let's, let's fear that in the proper sense. And even if you're in a situation that is unjust, God's providence has put you there. So submit yourself 
Submit your service to this person in authority. And don't just do it when they're looking. Be sincere in your service. You know, I have a lot of weird jobs in my life, particularly when I was younger in my 20s. One of the jobs I had um, was uh, working for Revlon. Not in the cosmetic side of things. I wasn't doing any of that. But I, I, was, I, I was a college student, and I worked in a warehouse. Uh, the research, International Research Center for Revlon it was, was in my hometown, Edison, New Jersey, and there were lots of warehouses. And they would take product from, from the plant, and they'd store it in the warehouse. And I was a receiver, uh, which meant that I stood there with a the manifest as the union truck workers pulled up their trucks, and then unloaded them. And I made sure that everything that came off the truck was on that manifest. Now, it was a union operation, which meant that I could do my job, and that was it. I couldn't help anybody do their job. I would get in severe trouble for that. I did that once, and I got rebuked. So I would watch these truckers during the summer months go back into their boxes, uh, their hot boxes, pulling things off, and watching a guy feel, looking like he's about to, to keel over from heat exhaustion, and I can't help, or I would be in trouble for doing so. Um, now, the other side of it, and the managers were kind of taskmasters. It was not a good relationship between management and workers. And on the flip side, I would watch the workers, guys I was working with, when they, when, when they, when they had the opportunity, they were sitting down. Uh, there was, there was a, an office in the back of the warehouse. It, it used to be the front of the warehouse, but then they shifted everything around, and then this office space just became empty space, not used for anything. And when I was hunting around for things, trying to find where something that had moved into the warehouse and that was lost somewhere on the shelves. I would look in that room sometimes and I would see guys under the desks just hanging out, you know, because the boss wasn't looking and so I'm not going to work. Paul says, don't serve like that. Serve with sincerity. Offer your best as if you're offering it unto Christ. And you might say, oh, you don't know my boss. You don't know how demanding, how uncaring, how, how authoritarian, how cruel. Well, this is what I would say. Whoever your boss is, they probably don't hold a candle to the masters of ancient Rome. They probably don't hold a candle to the, to the slaveholders of the antebellum south in terms of their cruelty. And Paul was speaking more squarely to the slaves in those situations than he is to yours. It's a hard word to offer your best to a boss who doesn't appreciate you. And to do it, particularly if you're a slave, you have to have a big view of God, of what God can do, of how God will vindicate you, despite your circumstances, despite what it looks like, despite the fact it looks like you will never experience justice in your life, to keep on believing you need a big God. Came across a recent tweet by a former classmate of mine, Dr. Anthony Bradley. He teaches now at King's College in New York City. And he talked about the need to have a big God for the African-American experience. This is what he wrote, a PSA, only, a, only big God theology gets you through slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow, resistance to desegregation, and the criminalization of black poverty, and still believe in the incommunicable attributes of God. That's like all the characters of God that you like, whoa, he's big and awesome. And still believe in the resurrection and the authority of Scripture, the Scripture saying to the person who's in an unjust situation, keep on serving. Only a big God will help you get through that situation. 
You know, it was the black church in slavery under Jim Crow, living through segregation, that held on to the liturgical greeting, God is good all the time. They needed a God who was big. And God's, the God who's spoken to those circumstances speaks into yours. And we can learn something from the faithful testimony of our brothers and sisters in the black church. Learn about long-suffering. Learn about trusting the promises of God, trusting in God's justice even when it seems far off. I will say this, though, that if you're in an abusive work situation, you're not a slave, so you don't have to stay. You can leave. It might not feel like you can leave, but often we have more options than we, than we think we do. But even if you can't leave, God is with you. And Jesus understands your plight. You know, you know Jesus, right? You familiar with him? The one who was mocked for the things that you did, punished for your selfishness, condemned because of your cruelty and oppression of other people. Now we long to see fuller and fuller tastes of God's justice in this life. But even if we don't taste it as often as we would like, we will be full in the next life. Whether we're slave or free, God is no respecter of persons. Can you believe that for your situation? Your situation where you feel crushed, where you feel taken advantage of. Those without power, do you really believe that God advocates for you? For those who are in power or feel like people don't respect you, do you believe that God is for you and wants to see your success? Maybe not success as you define it, but he wants to see you prosper. If you do believe that, then serve. Serve those who are in authority over you. Serve those who are under your authority. We need to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Why is that? Because we know who's in charge, really, and that's who we serve. So I'll ask you again, if you believe it, say it with me. Who's in charge around here? Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, and we do pray that you would inspire us to greater service of you and each other in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. Uh, sometimes you call us to do things we find very hard. So remind us this day you are with us and that the person we serve is not the flesh and blood we see around us, the person before us, but you. Change us, Lord. Make us like Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray it in his name. Amen.